Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, you can pull that out and head to the New Testament as we continue through walking through the book of Acts. And uh, we are returning to Acts chapter 8 this morning, so you can head back to the very beginning of that chapter. We spent a little bit of time last week in the first half of that story in Acts chapter 8. What we're going to do this morning is pick up the very beginning of Acts chapter 8 and then move to the second and the final story uh, that is contained within Acts chapter 8. And uh, if you're new with us, what we've been doing as we're walking through Acts is uh, we're going through a series that I have entitled, The Power to Change the World. As we look into the world that we see every day, nobody denies that things are broken, that things are not as they ought to be. And the world has a variety of solutions for how do we fix what we see. And what the scripture will suggest to us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit is that there is one and only one who has the power to change the world. I'm going to throw a date out to you this morning, July 2nd, 1982. July 2nd, 1982. What were you doing on July 2nd, 1982? Uh, in my own case, I was 23 days away from making my glorious debut to the world on July 2nd, 1982. Um, many of us here were not born yet, July 2nd, 1982. Some of you have fond memories of things going on in the year 1982. For Lawrence Richard Walters, it was a big day. Uh, Lawrence Richard Walters, who would, uh, for the remainder of his life on earth, be known as Lawn Chair Larry... Larry got to fulfill a dream he had had for many a year, many a year of floating in the sky. Anybody ever heard of Lawn Chair Larry before? Well, let me tell you a little bit more if you haven't. Lawn Chair Larry had an idea, and his idea that day was to strap himself to a patio chair, which sounds like a lot of fun, and then to attach 45 helium weather balloons to that chair for his mission of flight. Uh, for this great flight, he also took with him a pellet gun with which to shoot out the balloons for a gentle return back to earth. Uh, he took with him a CB radio to be aware of what was going on, I suppose, sandwiches, a camera to photograph the experience, and of course, plenty of cold beer. So uh, his intention was to cut the straps that held him to his Jeep launch pad and then to gently rise into the atmosphere. Um, however, uh, his uh, ascent could be described as not very gentle. He immediately, rapidly rose to an altitude of 15,000 feet, that is essentially three miles into the air, at which, of course, he immediately accidentally dropped his pellet gun. And if you had been in that situation, you would do exactly what Lawn Chair Larry did. He cracked open the first of his ice-cold beer. Uh, this is a true story, as you can see from the picture behind me. Uh, he then floated from his launch pad in San Pedro, California, into a very small local airport known as LAX, uh, the Los Angeles International Airport, if you are not familiar with their call sign. He was actually reported to be in the air first by a pilot who was attempting to land at LAX, and you can imagine what that call back to the station sounded like. There's a guy in a lawn chair and a lot of balloons, and he is in my way. After he floated through LAX airspace, he uh, began to thankfully uh, descend and actually landed by crashing into a power line and knocking out the entire power grid of Long Beach, California for almost 20 minutes. He was immediately, obviously, arrested for any number of oddball rules, which you don't necessarily think of ways to break the law. 
um, and was confronted by uh, or arrested by the Long Beach police. But there were also reporters by this time as word began to get around what was taking place. And the reporter asked what seems like a very reasonable question to me. He said to Lawn Chair Larry, why did you do it? Why'd you do it? This is his word-for-word response. Says Lawn Chair Larry, why did I do that? I just got tired of sitting around. That sink in. I just got tired of sitting around, man. Tired of the, the everyday. Tired of sitting around. I want to do something new and different and maybe important and life-changing and impactful or that people would know about me. As I share with you that story this morning, because I think that most people, not even in the world, I think most people in our churches today feel like Lawn Chair Larry. I think we have this mentality, whether we realize it or not, where we go, I'm just kind of tired of sitting around. What I see in the Scripture is that I'm supposed to be a part of seeing the gates of hell being broken down as we assault the kingdom of hell and invite people into the kingdom of heaven. But the truth is, is I can't really remember the last time that I shared my faith. I've never really been a part of an experience where I've seen somebody give their life to Christ, where I've shared the gospel and they've said, yes, I want Jesus in my life the way that you have Jesus in your life. Do you know uh, statistically um, that 90% of evangelicals in America have never shared their faith? I think the reality is, is that more than fearing death, we fear sharing the gospel with somebody, with our, with our words or with our lives. Uh, in American evangelicalism today, it takes on average about 80 Christians to result in one convert. Just thinking about who we are as believers, particularly here in our context and our culture. Um, we are a Presbyterian church, remember, of the PCA, and in the PCA, 60% of our churches uh, are plateaued, they're not growing, or they're actually declining in, in the, the number of people that are part of that local fellowship. And that statistic makes us the second fastest growing denomination in the United States. That is the situation here in the U.S. Only 1% of churches in America right now are growing by reaching lost people, right? So rather than shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic uh, of reaching new people for Christ. And statistically, about 3,700 churches close in the U.S. each year. That's before the pandemic hit. It has nothing to do with the, the challenges that we've all seen and experienced the last two years. By comparison, on average, there are 3,700 evangelical churches uh, planted each year in the United States. And if you're doing the math so far, that means the net gain of churches in the United States is zero. We have a problem. We don't want to live anymore like Lawn Chair Larry. Interestingly enough, with Lawn Chair Larry, uh, it was not a few years more before he, he gave up on life uh, on earth. He never came to know Christ, but he also, this, this desire that was within him, that is a desire that God has placed in every human heart, he couldn't figure it out. The Scripture has the answers. The book of Acts here this morning has the answers. For those who are going, I need something solid and permanent and life-changing in my life, and for us as believers who are saying, how do I get off of the chair and into what God has called me to do and to be? How do I share Jesus with others and see the Lord Jesus' kingdom come in my life? Let's pray this morning, and then we're going to walk through uh, the story of Acts here in chapter 8 one more time. Let me open us in a word of prayer before we go to the Scripture. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We submit ourselves to it because we submit ourselves to you. We thank you that your word is perfect, it is without error, and contained within it is the promise of hope and life and salvation through Jesus Christ, the only one who can change the world, who can change our hearts, who can change a life. And so we are grateful for your love and your mercy and your grace towards us this morning, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Five ways this morning that we can share Christ that we're going to see from Acts chapter 8. I want us to look first again at verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 8. Number one of those five is this, sharing Christ means enduring persecution. Sharing Christ means enduring persecution. We looked at this in depth last week as we saw the first parts of our story. I want to reread the first four verses of Acts chapter 8 to us. The Bible says this, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went." Stephen is the first martyr in church history, and and his death, his murder, is what kicks off this entire moment. Stephen experienced a mock trial because he talked about Jesus as Lord and Savior, and with no verdict, they stoned him to death, and the Bible says that on that day, a great persecution broke out. Can you imagine that taking place in America today? I think that if I asked 10 people, I would get 10 different answers to that question, but Understand it is fact that this sort of thing happens every day in many countries, many places, and many cultures around the world. Uh, The Center for Studies on New Religion says that Christianity was the most persecuted religion on earth. Uh, These statistics are from 2016, and it says that 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith in that year, in 2016. Palm Bay is a city, before everybody on the planet began moving here, Palm Bay was a city of 112,000 people by comparison. So imagine if the the city of Palm Bay were wiped off the earth every year because you believe in Jesus. That is the, the reality that we see, not just in Acts 8, but today. And so we ought to remember the persecuted church and we ought to pray for them, but understand simultaneously, as we saw last week, in those places where the gospel is most attacked, the gospel is spreading the most. In those places where Christians are being persecuted the most, new believers are coming to Christ and saving faith in those same places the most. God uses persecution for His glory, for His kingdom growth, and for the good of His people And ordinary people like you and I get to share the same good news of Jesus worldwide. Our foundational uh, verse for the book of Acts is Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit arrives and He gives the gift of multiple, many real languages, and the clear message is to go and share the gospel in those places where that multitude of languages are being spoken. Go, tell others. But no one wanted to go to share the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And so the message for us today as well is clear as established churches. Let us not be or become a holy huddle. Let us not live our lives as a holy huddle. The Bible says everyone was scattered, and then it adds this little tidbit. It says, but the apostles still wouldn't go. 
And we'll come back to that idea in Acts chapter 11 further as to what exactly was going on there. But here, Luke puts the spotlight, Luke is the author of Acts, he puts the spotlight on Christians who launched out with the gospel outside of the city of Jerusalem. See, the church grows not just by the preaching of the apostles, but when every believer is filled with the Spirit and shares the good news of the gospel. Ordinary people planted churches. Uh, Stephen Neal is a church historian at Yale, and he says that the apostles from Acts chapter 8, what we just read, for the remainder of church history, apostles will now be playing catch-up to an anonymous group of ordinary believers who are spreading the gospel around the world. Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome are essentially the, the three key churches in the next several hundred years in the history and the life of believers on planet earth. They are the church planting centers of the world, and we don't know who planted any of them. They were not planted by any of the apostles. They were planted by ordinary believers. So, for example, Paul, who we all know, Paul is going to go on four missionary journeys, and throughout the Scripture, he continues to say with deep desire, I long to go to Rome, that the gospel would be known in what is the capital of the world. I want to go to Rome, and I want to see people come to believe in Jesus. And when he gets there in Acts chapter 28, he finds that there's already a church there. Hey, Paul, we've been waiting on you. It's great to see you. Welcome into our fellowship. Who planted the church at Rome? We have no idea. Ordinary believers who were scattered by persecution, who faithfully shared the good news with others. Sharing Christ means enduring persecution. Number two, sharing Christ means reaching cross-culturally. Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, incredibly simple. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Reaching across culturally, reaching outside of the people that know and look and act and think the way that I do is not a brand new idea. It is following in the footsteps of Jesus. See, Jews intentionally would physically walk around Samaria and Samaritans so as to avoid the entire group of people. Samaritans were half Jewish. In 740 B.C., Assyria destroyed the northern half of Israel, and those enemies moved into Samaria, and they forced marriages, and the generations that followed became ethnic, religious, and social outsiders known as Samaritans, the people of Samaria. Jesus in the Gospels intentionally walks right into the middle of Samaria, and the first person that he shares the Gospel with is a Samaritan woman whose profession is prostitution. Jesus shows us how we ought to live. And by the way, the Samaritans were not nice people either. The Jews were not nice to them. The Samaritans were not nice to the Jews. In one of the more amusing situations that I can only imagine, Samaritans were known during the Jewish festival of Passover, Samaritans were known to show up to the temple in Jerusalem and launch pigs at the side of the temple just to mock uh, the Jewish people. And if you know anything about Jewish people, a pig is not on the menu. It's incredibly offensive and incredibly rude. Samaritans were known to beat up Jewish pilgrims who were headed into Jerusalem to worship God. They didn't like each other. But now the gospel goes into that place. Philip had plenty of reasons to avoid Samaria, but he went straight in. And the gospel created an instant unity that overcame 800 years of animosity. There was the diversity now of believers of different places rallied around Jesus. 
Because the message of the gospel is a universal message to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race, every income level, and every background. No matter who you are, you can have a personal saving relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, His Son. This is an important message for our community today. The 112,000 or plus that uh, make up the city of Palm Bay, 64% of Palm Bay is white, 18% is black, 14% is Hispanic. Palm Bay is a combination of blue and of white collar. 25% of Palm Bay currently lives below the poverty line. Our question that we should perpetually ask is not, is Jesus good enough to love and serve and care and save all these people? We know the answer is yes. Our question is, does every single one of those groups of people feel welcome when they walk into our church or when they walk into our home? And that is our desire, that they feel welcome and that they see in us Jesus. Sharing Christ means reaching cross-culturally, and this is God's idea first. Before anybody else on the planet ever thought it was a good idea, God thought it was a good idea. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, we read it here often and with good reason. The picture of the end is this, Revelation 7, 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is people from every situation, context, period of history going, He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's our Lord. What a beautiful moment that will be. Sharing Christ means reaching cross-culturally. Number three as we jump in now to this specific story here, we got the sort of the buildup. Now we see Philip on his sort of second missions experience, and the Holy Spirit has brought him now to this man who is an Ethiopian. Sharing Christ, number three, means obeying boldly. Sharing Christ means obeying boldly. We're going to look first at verses 26 and 27, and then verse 30 and 31 to see this principle here in action. The beginning of this particular story of Philip and the Ethiopian says this, verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, go, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. I love that. God's call here is a direction, but not a destination. Let that sink in for your own life. God's call here is a direction, but not a destination. Philip is not given a map. He does not pull out his iPhone 13 and punch it in. He's not told by God why he should do that. He's given no details of any kind. He's not given the plan. God has a plan. Philip doesn't need the plan. He needs a direction. Go south. Um, we know historically there are only two roads to Gaza from where he is at, and this one is the far less traveled one because it's the desert road, and you can assume all the things that are true of deserts are true of this particular desert. Uh, suffice to say, it is an unlikely place to do personal evangelism. There's not many people out there, but God works in the unlikely. God's plans are so much bigger than ours, so we may look at a situation and say, God, that seems unlikely. God says, watch, 
God works in the unlikely. God calls you to His direction, a path, and the call is to obey boldly. Understand that we see throughout Scripture, and we see it evidenced in this very story, God is in total sovereign control bringing Philip to this Ethiopian. God knows the destination. Philip doesn't need to know it. He knows the God who knows all things. God knows the beginning from the end. It's not unlikely for God. It's unlikely for Philip. It's also uncomfortable for Philip. Uh, The road to Gaza is like I-10 West. You ever done I-10 West? Start out in Jacksonville, you hit nothing until the center of Texas. No offense to any of the small towns along the road, but it is not an eventful ride, I-10 West. And I'm sure if I was from the Midwest, I could throw out a couple of other numbers. It's the same experience. There's just nothing. For them, there's a bunch of nothing, except maybe some enemy Philistines who would love to kill Philip. That's really the only thing he's going to find out there. Uh, For Philip, it would have been up to a 165-mile walk for him to complete the entire road. We don't know how much of the road he completed. Simplicity uh, of Philip's obedience and faith is what strikes me. The Bible just says, so he started out. Okay, God, it's what you want? I'll do it happily. Philip is living a life on mission to share the gospel, and he shows us a little bit about what faithful, faithful gospel sharing looks like. If I can skip ahead in the Scripture in the story for a second, let's look at verses 30 and 31 to see this in action. It says, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Believer, you may say, and, and I can commiserate with you in that, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Let me encourage you to run to the Scripture. The Scripture will tell us what to say and what to do. But I, just to look at this snapshot of a story for a second, notice that the very first thing that Philip did was listen. If you're looking for a blueprint on how do I share the gospel, notice that the first thing he did was listen. Listen. Philip was patient, and Philip asked a genuine question, not a bait-and-switch question, a genuine switch, uh, a question. Do you understand what you're reading? Uh, Ken Ingram and I talked this week about the significance of just asking people a simple question um, who, who may or may not know Jesus, which is, how can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? And what specifically can I pray for you? And if you want to go really radical, you can even stop right then and there and pray for them about the things that they have suggested. Uh, I'm 39 years old, and I will tell you that in my life, I've only had one person in my entire life who, when I said, can I pray for you, they said no. Only once. So you may have that experience, but if that's the case, okay. Go to the next person. How can I pray for you? The second thing that he did besides listening was he began to build a relationship with this man. He was eager to to spend time with this Ethiopian, and he stuck with him. Um, This is not some sort of a gospel raid where you run up, you give them the five points of the three things, the two this or the six that, and then you run away and never see them again. This is a relationship in which he is listening and wants to build uh, a connection with this man. Thirdly, he was prepared with the gospel message. He knew from the Scripture what to say, and even though this man is reading the Old Testament, we understand today that every word of the Old Testament points us clearly to one person. 
Jesus Christ, Messiah, Savior of the world. And so Philip, even though the New Testament hasn't even been written yet, he is ready to walk through the Old Testament work of Isaiah and point this man to Savior Jesus. And then I think it's obvious that he started small. He listened, he built a relationship, he was prepared with the gospel message, and he started small. One person, one conversation, one passage of Scripture. Um, I don't know who said it, but I think it's a profound point. Uh, quote, there is, there is enough potency in one acorn to provide wood for the entire planet. Number three, sharing Christ. It means obeying boldly. Number four, as we continue to consider this passage, number four is sharing Christ means trusting the Holy Spirit. It means trusting the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's a new experience for some of us. Let's look at verses 27, the second half, uh, all the way through verse 29. So it began with saying he started out. So now we continue. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Again, destination, uh, full plan, no. But here's the direction. Here's where I want you to go. And we see God's plan unfolding. We see God's purpose and God's sovereignty and goodness unfolding. Philip didn't know what was going to happen, and we don't have to either. But God is working. The Holy Spirit, to be specific, is all over this passage and actively working. In verse 26, the Holy Spirit told him, go to an unlikely place. In verse 29, it said, go to an unlikely person, an Ethiopian. This is a man of a different color skin. This is a man of a different nationality. This is a man of a different class. This Ethiopian was a high-class dude. He is essentially second in charge of the entire nation of Ethiopia, and he's in charge of the money. This guy is incredibly important. Philip's a nobody, but Philip has the one thing that this Ethiopian needs and he doesn't have. See, the Holy Spirit has already been working in this Ethiopian man's heart. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship, which means that this man had already converted to Old Testament Judaism. He doesn't know who Jesus is, and as he's reading the Old Testament, he is wanting to know the rest of the story. He has a copy of Isaiah that he's reading, but he isn't satisfied, nor should we be in just reading the Old Testament, because the Old Testament points us to Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise and every prophecy of the Old Testament. And he says, do you understand? And in some of the most profound words ever that are incredibly applicable for us, he says, well, how can I understand unless someone shows me, unless someone tells me? As God does not need us, He invites us to tell others about Jesus. God has been planting questions in this man's heart. Okay, so see two things. We talk about the reality all the time from Scripture that divine, uh, divine sovereignty, that God is sovereign, and human responsibility, it's not a choose one or the other. The Bible is very clear that both happen throughout and in every circumstance. Uh, in this particular case, we could use a couple of really important theological terms that we see in Scripture to understand the Holy Spirit's ownership and dominance of this scene. 
One is providence, the providence of God, which essentially means that all of creation is under God's sovereign care, and He is working all circumstances according to His plan and purpose for His glory and the good of His people. Another one is the effectual call. Maybe that's a new term for you, the effectual call. That is that the work of the Holy Spirit here is convicting us of our sin and enlightening our minds to know Jesus, changing our will and enabling us to accept the gospel because we on our own are spiritually dead and hopeless. And so what the Holy Spirit here is doing is exactly that. He's moving in this Ethiopian's heart so that this Ethiopian man will in just a few moments come to ask, believe, receive Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. So the Holy Spirit dominates the show, and yet you and I are called to obedience. We're called to obey boldly again. It says the Spirit stopped him and told Philip to go up to that chariot, and Philip obeyed. We're called to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is mentioned 59 times in the book of Acts? And 40 of those times, He is speaking. So are we listening Are we willing to pray and say, Lord, use me. I'm available to your purposes and your plans, and I want to follow you. I'm looking to you in your word. I understand that the Holy Spirit speaks what Jesus has given him to speak, and I submit myself to you. It's all about you, Lord, and yet I want to be used in whatever way that I can. The Apostle Paul gives us a beautiful picture of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. Very famously, he says of himself, he says, I planted, talking about evangelism here, he's using the, the metaphor again of plants. He says, I planted Apollos, it's another brother in Christ, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God's sovereignty did not minimize Philip's responsibility to share. The best motive that you and I have to evangelize is that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Because if it was up to you alone or up to me alone, how many people would be saved? Zero. I can't even change my own heart, but God can, and He has, and He does every single day. For some of you today, uh, the Scripture and the Spirit uh, are speaking to you, and maybe for the first time, and, and you're hearing about the love of God who pursues us even when we don't pursue Him, and and you're going, I want to hear more about that. I want to know more about who Jesus is. Maybe you are walking through your own life, and your life feels a lot like the desert that these men found themselves in, and you know something is not right. You've tried religion, so-called. You've tried chasing the American dream. You've gone through hard times, and maybe that's even why you're here this morning, but you know that you need more, and maybe this is your Philip in the Ethiopian moment, and God in His grace and His mercy, is saying, I am here for you. Will you trust me in your life to do for you what only I can do? I love you. I've made a way for your sin and your brokenness to be forgiven. I've made a way for you to experience new life and eternal life. I've made a a, a way for a very real place called heaven where you can come and be with me forever. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning. My encouragement to you is listen and respond. Because fifth and finally, guys, sharing Christ, experiencing Christ for the first time means rejoicing in the gospel. 
Sharing Christ means rejoicing in the gospel, and the gospel is just the word that the Bible uses for the good news. And the good news is that Jesus has come to save us from our sins, that the God of this universe has come down to us to do for us what we could never do ourselves. He is the power, the person to change the world. Look at the last eight verses here as they rejoice in the gospel together, starting in verse 32. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who's he talking about? 33, in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, man, what a great question. Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that, this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news, the gospel about Jesus. Tell me, please, who is this about? One word, one name, Jesus. It's about Jesus. We don't know if the Ethiopian was aware that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had been murdered in recent years. We don't know if he was aware that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and been seen by hundreds of other believers before he ascended back into heaven. But here he is reading Isaiah and says, who is this about? Isaiah 53 is what he is quoting here, what he's reading, and this is a prophecy written 800 years earlier. It continued evidence that Jesus is who He says He is. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus stood for another mock, fake trial. Jesus was lied about, falsely accused in that trial, and when that happened, Jesus remained silent, says Matthew 26, verses 60 through 63. He had no need to defend Himself from their lies. He knew who He was. He knew what He was coming to do. Jesus was innocent. Jesus never sinned, but He willingly took my guilt and sin and shame, willingly took our guilt and sin and shame. Understand that in a world of injustices, this is the greatest injustice of all time, that the sinless Son of God, fully God, fully man, died for sins that you and I committed. Think of all the ugliness that is on planet earth. Jesus died to save sinners. John chapter 1, verse 29 in the New Testament, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist said that the first time he saw Jesus walking towards him. See, guys, in a nutshell, here's the deal. There's bad news. It's called sin. Sin is all the bad things that we do, and we deserve, every single one of us, death and separation from a holy God for our sin. But that's not the end of the story. It could have been, but it's not. We deserve that, but God, in His infinite grace and mercy and sovereignty, sent Jesus, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died in your place. Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian, and this Ethiopian believes that good news for himself personally. In that moment, he trusted Jesus his personal Lord and Savior. And in that moment, the Ethiopian went from death to life. And the Ethiopian celebrated by being baptized. 
The Scripture doesn't tell us any more about the Ethiopian, though we would love to know more. Church history uh, by a man named Eusebius, who lived in the late 200s AD, says that this Ethiopian man went, to plant, went on to plant the very first church in the African continent and help lead that country to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's not the Scripture. I'm just telling you what somebody who was essentially there says, this is what that Ethiopian man did next. Today, the church is growing faster in the continent of Africa, certainly, than it is here on this continent. God is moving and doing powerful things, though they face persecution. There are believers there, like there are here, who are obeying boldly and sharing the good news and rejoicing in the power of the gospel. Nothing else will satisfy. Have you experienced the good news? And maybe you have experienced the good news, but it's, it's become stale. And you're feeling a little bit like Lon Larry. I invite you this morning to remember the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus and let Him today continue to change your life. Amen? Let's pray together.